All right, here with my friend Pej. Pej, thanks for coming on South Coast Chronicles. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. How do you say your last name? Last name is Alagamandan. Full name is Pejman Alagamandan for anybody that wants to take notes there or I just go. go by Pej to make it easy and simplify it a little. And what, where does that name come from? What's your, what's your nationality? I'm Persian. I'm Iranian. That's, okay. It's an Iranian name, Persian name. Okay, awesome. And yeah. did you grow up here? Were you born in Iran? Born in Germany. Okay. To Persian parents that met in Germany, came to the United States of America, Salt Lake City, Utah, when I was five years old, first day of kindergarten. Did you speak German when you came over here? German was my first language. I didn't know English. I didn't know Farsi. And then my mom told me in the house, we speak Farsi moving forward here in America. And at school, you learn English and German got put on the back burner. Can you still speak any German? Not really. When I went to Costa Mesa High School when I was 15, I, I took German classes and some of it came back to me. But, you know, that was like yeah. a five, five-year-old education yeah. of, of German speaking when I first got here. That's cool. So you grew up in, like, would you say a normal kind of family background you're like what was that like growing up i think growing up well i grew up in utah from five to 15 and like uh you know it was a kind of culture shock being a little brown persian muslim kid in in mormonville so i never really felt like i fit in yeah uh my parents weren't into drugs my dad drank on the weekends sometimes but um i was an outcast right out of the gate like i just remember like feeling different growing Mm -hmm. up in utah and so I would uh, kind of try to hang out with other outcasts. Like when I got into my adolescent period, I'd hang out with other kids that were that felt different. Right. And so growing up in Utah, right, you're around a, a predominantly Mormon culture. It was all Mormon. What was that like? like it was crazy. Like, yeah, what did they were they judgmental? Like, no, they they, when you, we or? first got into town, I do remember as a kid that they put uh, bread baskets and, and fruit baskets on our on our front porch and invited us into their church, but. You know, like I, I investigated. I definitely went to some of their their right. stuff. I even did some uh, seminary classes and things like that, um, which counted as credits for junior high. But like, they, you know, if you wanted to join them, they were very happy about yeah. it. And if you didn't, then you know, they were cool. Yeah. A lot of my Mormon friends were really good people. Yeah. And to this day, I see them on Facebook. And yeah, some of them aren't really active Mormons anymore. I see their right. little wine glasses and things right. like that. They're Jack Mormons, right. if you will. But I mean, they were good people. Yeah. The family values that Mormons carried was definitely something to look look up to. That's neat. You know. Yeah. So you grew up in feeling out of place. First time. When's the first time you took a drink or a drug or? As far as, but my dad used to give me sips off of his cognac and his beers as, yeah. at a very young age, like eight, nine, ten years old. Right. I was the dizzy kid doing the dizzy thing in the living mm-hmm. room until you fell down. So he found it amusing with his friends to give yeah. me a sip of the cognac and follow, watch me fall down quicker. But I remember being 12 years old and, uh, and huffing gas. Gasoline. That was like your first like. Well, we we, we like, were yeah. already kind of sniffing glue in 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 health class uh-huh. to kind of feel some kind of effect. Yeah. And then I thought, well, you know, the gas has these like aerosols, like this smell, right? So I start I started huffing gas while I was mowing lawns, and I went into this other dimension of right. my mind, right? And it, that happened for a little bit, but between huffing gas at the age of twelve, smoking weed at the age of twelve, and drinking, like actually going to a wedding, a Persian wedding, and drink, mm-hmm. drinking and getting drunk, that that was like my be, the beginning of of using substances. Right. right. Yeah. And so you you start using. I got a question just about the Persian culture. Like, yeah. how is addiction looked at in your culture? Like total you know? taboo. The Persian community doesn't individually. Families do not want to. 
think of their loved one as being a heroin addict or a meth addict or anything like that. So if if that gets found out, mm-hmm. they try to sweep it under the rug or nobody should find out, no extended family, no friends, because it's looked down upon. Like we want our, our child to grow up to be a successful person. Right. And so, but there's a lot of addiction that runs rampant in our community too, especially with opium addicts, mm-hmm. uh, lots and lots of cocaine. I mean, yeah. it's cocaine was kind of a classy drug. Sure. And so... You know, even living out here in Orange County, like yeah. the, most of my Persian friends, it was cocaine on on the weekend nights, going to the clubs and stuff, like yeah. NYC and things like that. Yeah, doing yay and like drinking. Right, right, right. So, you're 12 years old. You start huffing gas, smoking weed, yeah. drinking a little bit. Like, when when's the first time you remember kind of having a consequence, or was it just all good? And um, I think you know back then, I think. I had a little police interaction because we were out getting loaded and, and toilet papering people's houses. But my consequences started happening when we moved, we moved to California when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I thought we were moving to L.A. because my dad said we were moving to L.A. But when the plane landed, it landed here in Orange County. I thought, well, this isn't L.A. But it wasn't far from L.A. Like my dream was to go to L.A. because we'd already vacationed there. And I always right. loved it. My family lived up there. But um, I, I was at Costa Mesa High School and... I mean, immediately I, I gravitated towards people that were having fun and, and getting loaded and, and drinking, using and all that. Um, consequences like were happening more within the home. Like right. my mom was finding out stuff and getting on my case. And so she was trying to make me, she was trying to change me, right? Like, no, don't become this, right. stay the good little boy that you are. But Man, come on! Like, I, yeah. Between fifteen and sixteen, like this is that golden high school era, and I was already just. Uh, let's find out where those high school parties are at, and let's go there. Was right? that the eighties? It was the eighties. Yeah, yeah, it was the, like yeah. like almost the late eighties. Right. Eighty seven, eighty eighty eight. Yeah. We might be the same age, right? Yeah. 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 Fifty one. Yeah, yeah, I'm fifty two. Yeah. You know, there was a t- there was a, t- a time there. You yeah. Know? yeah. And then going down to Mexico. Mexico was cool because. Uh, Cause you could drink all night long. Like there was no last call for alcohol. Right. There was no two a.m. like cutoff point. So we'd go down there, and the consequences did happen down there a few times. Definitely with the federalities. Like you know how it is down in Mexico. Yeah. Like if you get in trouble, like if you, you don't want to go to jail, but if you end up in the backseat of the federalities cars and you're on your way to jail, it's going to be an adventure. Right. And that's exactly what it was becoming. So you, that happened when you were a teenager. Yeah, that was happening at the age of sixteen. Um, I was already experimenting with coke too because I had a. A buddy whose dad worked in the uh, hotel industry, so he worked mm-hmm. long hours. So we were getting our hands on coke and freebasing and things like that. But um, uh, I remember by the time I was 17, I had a very traumatic car accident. It wasn't because I was under the influence. I did get blasted the night before, but um, unfortunately, I was driving to school with a, pa- a car just packed with a bunch of kids, and I hit this kid on his bicycle that was four- 14. And... Um, his bike and his body went over the hood of my car into the windshield. The windshield shattered, and the kid's body flung over the top of the head, the, the minivan in front of us. And he went head first into the ground and uh, was put on life support. And his mom took him off for of life support within four days. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's where my whole life became something different. Like, I, I started getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, that became an ult- ultimate excuse for me to use and drink in excess mm-hmm. and not have to feel anymore just what, so what, what was that like you get that that event happened and how'd you feel i didn't know what to do with myself yeah. you know I, I just thought like of all people in this whole school this happened to me mm-hmm. and everybody knows about it right and so people come up to me from other schools or just in my own school and be like 
hey, Pej, you're the guy that killed the kid on the bike. I'm like, uh, hey, bro, check this out. Yeah. You, know, like, you don't need to say that I killed the guy. Right. So I'd get into arguments and fights. And, and then I'd started, you know, kind of being a knucklehead, you know, 17 years old, just doing dumb shit. And I, I ended up going to jail, uh, to juvie, right? Like, when I got into juvie, I, I was like, if these people think they're disciplining me, like they got, they got, did you go to thing. juvie for that event? I went to juvie that was riding over my head. It was a vehicular manslaughter charge without gross negligence. Mm -hmm. I had other crimes that I accumulated, which took me to juvie. Mm -hmm. And that was like lingering, right? right? It was lingering. Um, no, I didn't get charged for that because it was undetermined who was actually at fault. In the end, later on with insurance and things like that, it took about five six years for them to determine that everyone had fault in that i had mm -hmm. fault in it the kid had fault in it the city had fault in it because of this stop sign and a lot of different things there was a lot of moving parts but for the most part like when i was in juvie that's where the consequences started to pile up in my life and i thought oh so this is what it's like to be locked up and i'd seen this stuff in movies like i don't know if you remember the, the movie with sean penn called bad boys the original bad boys yeah when i saw that as a kid mm-hmm I don't know why, like, I, I, it kind of looked like a place I might want to go visit someday. Right. It was weird. And then when I was actually in it, then I was like, no, I don't want to be here at all. Right. Like, this sucks. But when you're locked up for a while right. with an undetermined court date and you don't know when you're getting out and this and that, then it just becomes, then you start becoming institutionalized. Mm -hmm. and, and so I started getting a taste of that life. Mm hmm so you're in juvie at 17 years old. 17. How long did that last? I was in there for a few months, and they put me in the psych portion at first because because I said some shit that made them worried about me. Like I said I was going to kill myself, right. so they put me on suicide watch for a while, and then afterwards they took me off of suicide watch. And I mean, I saw stuff in this unit called Unit L, which was... And the inmates called the unit, uh, like the loony unit, mm -hmm. uh, stuff I could never erase from my mind. I'm talking like feces and, and mucus on the walls and crazy people doing crazy shit. And, and so after I was also introduced in there to uh, the 12 steps and the 12 mm -hmm. steps was because this old man would come in. He did like this panel. He had this big book, uh, big blue book, you know, right. AA book. And he'd read out of it. But like, you have to understand, like, I'm 17 at the time, like. I'm not ready to receive a message, yeah. but I do believe a seed was planted because that's where I first was introduced to that world. Right. But I wasn't ready for it yet. Um, and then they moved me to other units and finally I got out and my parents were going through a divorce at the time that really fucked with me. Like it, I didn't want them to split up. Yeah. Like I, we had a very dysfunctional family unit, but I didn't want our family to split up. Like this was mm -hmm. us, this is a the unit. And because of mom and dad having their differences or whatever, now they're split up. So by the time I got out, I was between homes. And I was getting into my later 17 years of age. Mm -hmm. So I try to stay at my mom's and I'd, I'd get into it with her after a few days. I'd go to my dad's back and forth, back and forth. Kind of this latchkey yo-yo child until yeah. I turned 18. And then, then it became, life became a whole other thing. Yeah. Okay, so you turn 18. It sounds like by that time you're into your addiction. Deep into like, it. Like, so what is your, what was your, like, what was the day like at 18? Like, well, by 18, like, You'll know this because we're around the same age. Like during that time, uh, the Grateful Dead was still touring. I went to one in '91. Yeah, they came. Yeah. They came to California to Irvine. Yeah. So that was my hallucinogen phase. Okay. So like I was doing acid. I was doing mushrooms. I didn't go inside the concert, but I certainly hung out sure. outside with all them hippies, right? Yeah. And um, and so that that was that era. Um, drinking was essential. Like mm -hmm. we always drank, right? Like that, that was just essential. Um, 
cocaine was a thing for a while, right? And then we were dabbling with the meth a little bit, right? Uh -huh. um, hadn't yet gotten any, any kind of opiates or nothing like that. But as life kind of progressed, and I went into like, from eight, mind you, I also, I realized like if I want a lot of this stuff, I'm gonna need to start selling this stuff. Right. And I remember being 17 and some kid told me like, this is the way you do it. You don't get high off your own supply, mm -hmm. you sling dope, and when you sling dope, you're gonna have plenty of it, just make sure that you don't do plenty of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that became a way of life. I mean, I was listening to, to uh, gangster rap and you know they profess and talk about like right. making like making money off of drugs yeah, yeah. and so i was making money off of drugs and it, it was a lifestyle i try to work in the workplace mm -hmm. I, st I try to go to occ right mm -hmm. but when you're loaded it's really hard to pay attention right. in school yeah. and when you're loaded it's really hard to keep a, a normal job because yeah. i worked at south coast plaza and did all the i was a security guard in an apartment complex where i was just right. getting high all the time but um but finally i just thought why don't i just post up at my crib and just sell drugs right and just do drugs yeah right like that that was a lifestyle and then came the the club scene yeah club scene like into like 1920 i started seeing things like club rubber mm -hmm. uh, there was i mean if you if you knew if you were mm -hmm. from oc or la back then you knew like that was that was the place to go right ecstasy hit hard me being a drug dealer i'm a you know drugstore cowboy mm -hmm. uh, we got that that ecstasy like we got yeah. we got to sling that all the time big money in that makes everybody feel like that euphoric bliss right and then um and then on top of that the raves mm -hmm. the raves were happening we were going to raves we were going to uh nightclubs uh dive bars cassidy's uh the swinging door all mm -hmm. these places and who are we hanging out with we're hanging out with chicks that work in strip clubs that are coming they need our product right if we got ecstasy if we got ghb if we got meth if we got coke we are everything they need yeah. and they'll do everything for us so again it was a lifestyle and and that was pretty much like what my day-to-day -day looked out like for a long time it was all i was doing now when i got into my mid-20s because i was artistic i created a, a clothing line and um i mean i know you know we know a lot of the yeah. same people luke from silver star and yeah Roji and Cha Cha shoes and all that. Right. So I created this clothing line called Nodge. It was a men's line. Um, it was uh, pretty much in relation to weed, right? right? Like pretty much we would get household, everyday household products and replicate the, the look of it, mm -hmm. but make it into weed brands, mm -hmm. right? Or drug brands and things right. like that. And then we made a, another a women's line called Nodules, and then we made surfboards, snowboards, skate decks, and we started selling this stuff, like mass producing it, yeah. selling it nationally across the country. And it was going places, mm -hmm. but, uh, but unfortunately, and I was throwing raves and doing drugs at raves and slinging everything from the clothing to the, all the stuff, to the drugs at the raves, that the problem was is I had no business sense never went to business school mm -hmm. and so like over a period of time my partners the guys that were all funneling the drug money alongside me into this company kind of just looked at me like with a stink eye they're like pez you're fucked up yeah like you're not well and, and you're doing meth mm -hmm. now we're going to vegas we're doing all that vegas like yeah remember the pimp and hole festivals yeah. and all that shit at club utopia yeah. we're doing all that stuff everything looks extravagant from the outside People think Pageant's really got it going on, but deep within the gallows and the pits of my stomach, there was always that sense of impending doom. Right. Like something ain't right. And I knew, like, listen, Chris, I, I fucking knew I'm not well. Like, I know I'm not well because I always felt uncomfortable in my own skin growing up. I had all the self-esteem issues. You sprinkle some violence within the home from my pops, and then on top of that, you got that car accident, that kid died. Right. And I, I, I have this, like, 
guilt that I'm just numbing, yeah. this shame, all this stuff that's built, been built up and pent up in me. And the only way that I'm, you know, the God-sized hole we speak of, like yeah. that void was being filled with, with drugs. Right. And, and that's what I was doing. So I didn't ever really feel whole, but people, I, I had to appear like I was whole. Sure. And we all had that front For until sure. we didn't have that front. So we didn't have that Even front. though we thought that we had that front, right, right. people that are around us are using, that are, we're using with go, hey, dude, you're fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had the same it's experience. It's pretty bad yeah. when your own friends are telling right. you like, you're pretty fucked that up. That are doing the same While thing While they're getting doing. fucked up with you. Right, exactly. So at 26, these guys that you're, you're doing the clothing stuff with tell you, hey, Paj, you're, you're, you're not well. You're not well. No. You need to get your shit together. What yeah. happened then? They kind of backed away from me. I um, I was trying to do things on my own. I started creating some wreckage for myself. Um, wreckage in the sense that I wasn't getting locked up at that time. I was, um, I'd lost an apartment. I got evicted for the first time in my life. I lost a car because this guy had fronted me a bunch of drugs and I took the money and went to Vegas and tried to play it and win it back, but I lost it, so he took my car. And, uh, and I was looking like I was pretty much on my way to homelessness. Right. But, you know, at the t- I don't know if you remember Eric Litzenberg. Litzy, God rest his soul, he's no longer with us. But he had a house down in, uh, in South County. So I went and stayed with him for a little while. And then that wasn't working out because he was tweaking and we didn't get along. And, and so my mom moved back from L.A. down here. And she got a place in Costa Mesa, which was my city. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a Costa Mesa kid sure. through and through. I love that yeah. city, right? And I was like... I went to her house and she said, um, listen, you can move in with me on three conditions. One is you be sober. I'm like, sure, no problem, I can do that, even though I didn't know how. Right. Two is you gotta have a job, no problem, I'll get a job right away. Three is you can't have that little hussy ex-girlfriend of yours, Kathy, she was the tweaker twin, right? right. You can't have her anywhere around the perimeter of this house, let alone on the property. Right. So I moved in with her for a little while. She had. This condo. But so were you planning on staying sober or you just told her yes? I yeah. told her yes with the intention of like maybe possibly st- stopping the heavy stuff, right? right. But, but I can still smoke weed and drink. Like it's not a problem. So yeah. I thought, right? Yeah. Now I moved in and she had this long garage that was separate of this condo where you could fit like two and a half cars. And so the back part of it, I turned into a little tweaker area, like a little mm-hmm. tweaker fort. Right. And there was it was soundproof and... I had become a DJ in the mix, and I was spinning records at Captain Cream. What was it? The, the Library Strip Club, right. and and uh, and Kathy had a little cubby hole back there. She didn't know about. She didn't need to know about Kathy living back there. And um, long story short, I, I got involved with La M. These Mexican mafia dudes. They started uh, fronting me meth on the cuff. I tried to quit doing meth for a while, but I just couldn't do it. Right? Like I really loved meth at this point. Mm-hmm. Meth was a, a way of life for me for a good. Um, I did, out of the 18 years I used drugs, I did meth for about 15 years. You know, I was moving some meth out to Hawaii, down my pants. This is prior to 9-11, mm-hmm. so uh, making lots of money doing that. But when I got linked up with these guys, um, Kathy got in trouble. And when Kathy got in trouble, I went and visited her in jail at the farm. And I remember she told me, hey, the sheriffs came in today and told me that I'll be getting released soon. If I tell on three, I get to go free. And I looked at her like, uh, Willie, who are you going to tell on? I feel bad for them. Not knowing that I'm a, I'm a sitting duck. Right. Right. Like, and so sure enough, uh, within a few days, I get raided at my mom's house by the uh, Orange County Methamphetamine Task Force, 
which was all these different police departments and sheriff's departments that had come together to create this drug task force, right? And when they came, um, they they raided the garage, right? And I mean, it was horrible. I'm, I'm back there like spinning records, sweating balls, and I turn off the music for a second. I'm like, Kathy, I hear, I hear voices. And she goes, um, what do you hear? I go, I think I hear men's voices. You go, Paz, you always hear voices. I'm like, no, no, these are fucking real yeah. voices. I'm telling you, like, this. I think it's the cops. She goes, it's not the cops. It's probably your neighbor, Adam. Just push the button. I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea. She goes, just push the button. I push the button. As the door opens, they're there in their riot gear with their guns drawn. Hey, Paz. Like, just knowing, mm-hmm. like, exactly who I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they took me upstairs. They had me handcuffed in the living room. My mom was at work. Kathy's hogtied on the floor. They're searching the whole place. They found stuff that I didn't even know I had, right? And as they came into the living room, I told them, hey, guys, can you guys just take me to jail real quick? Because if my mom comes home and sees Kathy, I'm more mm-hmm. afraid of my mom than I am of you guys. And they, we'll mm-hmm. get to you in a sec, kid. Then they took me down to, to the jail and back through the loop. And then I went to Theo Lacey. And I was trying to, you know, I had this case riding over my head. Um, I I ended up getting out of there after a while. I went. My, I tried to go back to my mom's house. She wasn't having it. She took me to a sober living. Um, it was a Persian sober living that was in Huntington Beach, run oh, by this okay. guy Siamak. Right? He was this little. He looked like a little Persian recovery Yoda, mm-hmm. just a character, right? I mean, he answered his door, and all I heard was just. He spoke like he sounded like Yoda with a Persian accent. He's like, "Hello, how are you doing? Welcome. <laughs> this is sober living. We have rules, regulations, chores. Yeah. We go to meetings." I just looked at him like, yeah. "Oh my god!" Right? Like, no thanks. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not interested. Yeah. Nice place you have here, great establishment. I didn't stay at his house. I left his house and I came over here to Costa Mesa. Plan B: This dude named Dave Regal, God rest his soul, he's no longer I know with Dave, us. Dave, yeah. remember? Yeah. But Dave was one of them AA Nazis. Like, yeah. this dude got up in my face. I, I don't know if I got, like, I must have walked in and puffed out my chest. And he mm-hmm. said, he just looked at me and said, listen here, kid. Yeah. You just get out of the jailhouse? I go, yes, sir. He goes, you keep your jailhouse mentality in the jailhouse. Right. When you're in my house, you go to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every single day. Are we clear? I'm like, yes, sir. So now I got to go to the Newport Club. Right. There was these two dudes that lived in this house. That One was like this old-timer Mexican cholo dude that had lived in Dave's house for five years. Yeah. Still had his shower shoes. I'm like, yeah. bro, really? Really? Yeah. Five years? You yeah. might want to find another place. Right. And there was like this wino too, like this old school uh, white, just like an old wino, right? They yeah. could never stay sober, but he would always like sober up for a while and come there. These two dudes would take my hands and we'd go to the meetings at the Newport Club. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember if you were sober back then, but like back then they had leather chairs upstairs mm-hmm. and you could smoke cigarettes in there. Yeah. And I used to sit in there just on the edge of my seat, just be like, my God, I hate this. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be here. I never shared. Not one time. Yeah. I, nobody needed to know my name was Pej. I didn't say I was an alcoholic or an addict. I identified as Brian. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> you sh- changed your name. I huh? didn't change. I didn't yeah. share one time. Yeah. Didn't want to sh- have nothing to contribute to the group. If it was a round robin meeting, right. everybody shared for a minute, 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 minute. They get to me. I'd be like, Pat's move it along. Got nothing for you. Yeah. And one day my boy Pete said, Pesh, why do you fucking even go to meetings? I go, you go to meetings? He goes, I go because the courts make me go, but don't you know the secret sauce? I go, what's that? He goes, you can sign your own court card. You yeah. don't have to go to meetings anymore. I'm like, is that a thing? Yeah. So I started signing my own court card, figured that whole system out. I was mm-hmm. very clever in that sense. Worked my way out of any kind of recovery-related stuff. Worked my way out of Dave's house. Tried to do it my way some more and 
within a couple of years, I was living homeless right here in Costa Mesa out of my car. Okay, so you're in your car. What year was that? Like Costa Mesa out of your car? 2006. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think I was doing so bad. I had one of my buddies that, you know when you have those friends when you're not well that come Mm -hmm. and tell you something that's good for you? Mm -hmm. My buddy came and he's like, Pez, you're homeless. You know that, right? I'm like, hey, hey, hey. Listen, bro. (laughs) Let's not attach that Let's word put a label on yeah. not, me not having a roof over I my said, head I said homeless people are the people that live in the tents right that's like that's lower level homeless or the people that sleep in the storefronts like that's bottom of the barrel homeless yeah. I still have my car right if anything I'm executive homeless right let's not let's not yeah. like degrade me right yeah. and he said yeah you're without a home so you're homeless yeah so he tried to tell me what's good for me then I try to go and dry out on a friend's couch for 10 days my version of detox was to, to quit doing meth, heroin, and cocaine. Mm-hmm. But I can still smoke weed and drink, but that's not detoxing. Yeah. That's just quitting the heavy stuff. Yeah. I knew nothing about recovery, nothing like that. And, um, and then my heart started palpitating. I had these little murmurs because the meth was starting to wear on me. And mm-hmm. I was only in my mid-30s. And also, my liver was starting to shut down a little bit. And, and one day, I just had like this epiphany. There was a series of events with some people that said some stuff at the right times. One was my friend Laura that I used to use with that saw me and she was sober and she told me to not go near her. I'm like, why? She goes, because you're fucked up. And like, I'm sober now and I I hold my sobriety close to my heart. You want to get sober? You can be in my life. I'm like, you hurt my feelings, Laura. She goes, I don't care. Like, Mm -hmm. this is more important to me. Between her, this guy named Disco that was in Rosie's circle that had just got out of rehab and another guy. These people told me things that made me think, just like go in the direction of it's time to get help. So what mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do? How do I go about this? I've been homeless for seven months. I didn't know what I called my mom, right? Like, and mom at that time was getting very educated, if you will, right? Like she was she was a member of Al Anon. Oh, okay, right? Like yeah. she she was yeah. probably a brown belt at the time. Right. So she answered the phone and talked to me differently than than mm-hmm. the, the Persian mom I used to pull the wool over. Her yeah. Eyes, right? She just she she basically just told me like why are you calling me? I'm like well because you're my mom. Right. I told you not to call me for a year until you have a year sober and you work those twelve steps. I'm like what are the twelve steps? What mm-hmm. are you talking about? You're my mom. She goes listen. I'll tell you this right now and it might hurt your feelings. I said what's that? She said you're dead to me. Dead to you? What are you teaching you those out on yeah. classes? Is that any way to talk to your son? You gave birth to me. You raised me. You brought me here to the states. Like mm-hmm. come on. She goes listen. I don't know who you are or what has happened to you. But you've been, I haven't had my son alive since you were an adolescent. And I don't know what kind of monster took over your brain and your body, but this isn't what I want in my life. If you want help, write down this guy's number. You can call him. He might be able to help you. So I wrote down his number. She said, you write it down? I said, yeah. And she went, click. My mom never hung up on oh, me before. Oh, wow. So I knew she meant business. Mm-hmm. Then Al-Anon's gotten her right, head, right? right. Once Al-Anon gets involved, yeah. party's over. So I waited a few days, and this guy's name was Max, and when I called this dude Max, a few days later, he answered the phone, and I said, Mr. Max, my name is Pej, I, th- I think I want to get sober. He said, you think you want to get sober? Mm-hmm. I said, no, I, I want to get sober. He goes, okay, well, when do you want to get sober? I said, well, today's Tuesday, how about Friday, right? <laughs> you put it on the calendar. Right, I have, yeah. I have some affairs to attend to, yeah. some, some things to finish yeah. up. So of course, like Friday morning, he told me, go to this house in Irvine, California at 9 a.m., be there sharp. I didn't even sleep Thursday night. I went and scoured that neighborhood at 6 a.m. just to make sure everything's intact. Mm-hmm. And then I finally parked my car at 9 a.m., went and knocked on that door, and lo and behold, it was that little 
Persian Recovery Yoda. Oh, it's the same guy. Same guy from five wow. years before. And he yeah. answered the door. He said, hello, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, my God, I can't shake this guy. I right. looked him in his eyes like, I know you. Yeah. He's like, I don't know you. Yeah. I'm like, how do you not know me? Yeah. You had a house on Beach Boulevard, did you not? He said, yes, I did. I said, five years ago, I came to your house. You showed me the bedrooms. I didn't stay. He goes, I don't remember you. I go, how do you not remember this mug? He goes, because I only remember the ones that stay. There you go. <laughs> and that was it. That was the, In the intake process, I went in. I told him, let's two things that are going to, you know, be deal breakers on me moving into your establishment. It wasn't even a treatment center. It was like yeah. a recovery home. He's like, as if like they have the privilege of having me move in. Mm-hmm. So, well, what is what are your two things? I said, I don't believe in God. Never talk about God around me. And the other one is don't send me to any AA, no 12-step, CA, NA, none of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, we don't talk about God very much, and we don't go to many meetings. I said, sign me up. And we were in a meeting that night. And then we were in two <laughs> meetings every single day from there on. And this guy was a straight shooter. He didn't, I mean, he was, he didn't mess around. Mm-hmm. And he's exactly what I needed in my in, like in yeah. front of me to put metaphorically put a mirror up. Right. This dude would say some. Uh, he was good. Like he was a counselor, so he would like run groups and shit. But he was good, man. Like he he'd say things like, "You're so inauthentic. You're inauthentic about your own inauthenticity." Mm-hmm. Like what the fuck does that mean? He goes, "You want me to break it down for you?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "You're so full of shit. You're full of shit about being full of shit." Yeah. I'm like, "Oh shit, that's yeah, that's bad." Dude. Yeah. And he's right. Yeah. It really sucks when you know somebody's got you figured out yeah. better than you know yourself. Right. And they're like breaking it down for you. And so over a period of time, I started listening to that guy. And I, 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 stu- I, mean, I wanted to leave a couple times. I wanted to go get loaded again. But I, the way this guy was for me, he was like the father figure I always needed because my pops had left me at an early age. Mm-hmm. And he was just a recovery guide. Just a dude that he talked the talk. He walked the walk. He was a former heroin addict. He was a former bank robber that never had been ever caught. Mm-hmm. So that was like the attraction right. rather than the promotion. Yeah. I was like, this guy's gangster. Right. Like my type of guy. And over a period of time, he showed me how to pay my bills. He showed me how to take care of my court cases. He encouraged me to go to college. I told him, I don't want to go to school. I fucked up in school throughout my high school days. Like I was a 1.8 grade point average guy he goes yeah. well Pej were you loaded and I said yeah he goes maybe if you go to school sober you'll do good mm-hmm. I said alright I'll listen to anything you say you never done me wrong Yeah. I go to college at uh, Saddleback uh-huh. I finished top of my class there you go 4.0 student dean's list yeah. I was like this is amazing Yeah. he was right Yeah. and then I started working in the field of addiction Yeah. because of that I started working with, first I got a job in adolescent treatment. So it's 2006, you get sober. 2007, I got sober. 2007, you got sober. Yep, 2007. So you're 16 years sober. 16 and a half years nice. sober. Yep, yep, awesome. Yep. When did so, you get sober? 2006. Two, one that's year how, before that's me? That's how I was able to do the math real fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah 2006 uh, in June, so mm-hmm. 17 and a half years. Nice, and I'm yeah. June 16, 2007. Yeah, so I'm June 6, 2006. Nice. So, nice. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. So you're sober, living in this sober living. Yeah. Slash back then they had he, that listen, sober he, he living. Ran, it was a it was a recovery home. Yeah. That he called New Life Treatment Center, but it wasn't even licensed. Yeah. But he ran it like a treatment center. Like he had groups. Right. He even had a therapist that would come in once a week and do therapy. Mm-hmm. And then he had a family group. The family group was it was dynamic. It was like awesome. Right. right. Like I'm telling you, like, he brought all of our families in. Did your mom start coming or did she make you wait a year? She did come. She did start coming because they already were in cahoots. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. But um, 
the cool thing about him for his place is the only way the families could be involved is if they were going to Al-Anon or Coda. So they had to go. Had to go. Yeah. They had to get, you know, we go get court cards signed and yeah. proof of meeting attendance. Uh-huh. So did the Al-Anons. Oh, that's cool. That's the way this guy operated. Yeah. He was no no nonsense. Yeah. So it was good because mom would come. He basically, the thing that, the turning point for me that made me want to stay sober 100% was that he he definitely pushed the 12 steps and getting a sponsor and working the steps. That was no questions asked. But this guy did a psychodrama on me where one night in a family group, after my mom wouldn't visit me for a couple of weeks, which really hurt me, mm. right? But on this particular night, they did a psychodrama. He had been trained in that, and in, in, in I don't, do you know what psychodrama yeah. is? Yeah. yeah. So they dimmed the lights. They had all the family sitting in a circle. In advance, he told me we're going to do a psychodrama. I'm like, I don't know what that is. He goes, just follow my lead. He put a 12-year-old kid, one of the client's kids that was visiting, he put, laid him on the ground and put a bed sheet over him. Then he had me walk around the room and talk about the day of my car accident. Mm. And he wanted to, he wanted to hear what, it, what was playing on the, on the radio in the car. How were you high school kids acting? Mm-hmm. You guys were laughing, having a good time. What happened then? I go, listen, I'm telling you, I'm pouring tears as I'm talking right. about this. And all of a sudden, I see the kid in front of my car, and I couldn't do anything about it. Couldn't hit the brakes fast enough. He, he hit the windshield, mm-hmm. and it, the rest was history. He said, okay, good, very good. Thank you for taking us through this so that everybody in the room gets the feel of what happened. Yeah. Now come over here and get on one knee and put your hand on top of this. And I go, what is this? He goes, this is representing the corpse of the kid that you hit on the bike. Mm-hmm. And he says, what was his name? I said, his name was David. He said, tell David how you feel about him losing his life. Mm-hmm. I said, David, I'm so sorry you lost your life that day. I, I never intended for that to happen. He goes, now you tell him about your life. What kind of life do you have, Peja? What, what kind of life I have? I don't have a life. I have never had a life. I don't know what having a life is like. He goes, so why don't you, you want to make a commitment, Pej? I said, yeah, I'll make a commitment. He goes, what's your commitment? I said, I want to help every addict, alcoholic of every age, race, creed, and color one day at a time for the rest of my life. That's heavy, just like that. Just like that. And he put his yeah. arm on my, I don't even know where the words came from. Yeah. I had sat in enough recovery rooms right. to hear some shit. Uh-huh. To where it was just sort of, it was as if God was speaking through me. Right. And then he put his hand on my shoulder. He goes, you mean that, Pej? And I said, yeah. And I looked at my mom, who I hadn't seen in weeks, or mo- sorry, months. And her face was shaking and she's crying. And I thought, this is a very powerful moment. You better not fuck this up, Pej. Like, mm-hmm. you better be stay true to your word and go do what you need to do. And so the next day I felt like a thousand pounds was lifted off my back. And that's what made my recovery. That was my turning point. That's where I made an absolute decision. There is no turning back. There's no relapsing. There's no fucking around anymore. Work the steps. Do your clinical therapeutic stuff here in this place. And move forward and go out and help people. Mm-hmm. And that is why I take this thing so yeah. seriously. So you said you walked in there. You didn't believe in God. Did that, was, that, was that a moment where you were kind of like, oh, maybe there is something? Or You know what? I'll tell you this right now. Like... I'm, I was a fraud when it came to not believing in God. Yeah. A lot of people are hell-bent on, I just don't believe in God. Mm-hmm. The reason I renounced God at 17 mm-hmm. is because the kid lost his life. Mm-hmm. And because I ended up in juvie. And I thought to myself, if I'm a child of God, and that's a child of God, mm-hmm. why did that kid get ejected out of this world without even knowing that he was going to die that day? Yeah. And why am I locked up like an animal in a cage? So... I stopped believing. I, I wanted to call myself an atheist, and I don't usually talk about this, but while being in that psych portion, the psych ward of that place, mm-hmm. they put a devil worshiper as my cellmate. 
oh. that was doing seances to upside down crosses that he would get out of Christian magazines. He'd like gotten some gum and put them all over the walls. He's like doing seances to the devil. I'm like, I don't want to be a non-God believer too. So yeah. then when the dude would come in with the panel and read out of the big book, he talked about we agnostics. Mm-hmm. So I started saying, I'm an agnostic because I might as well not be sure that there's a greater creative intelligence right. as opposed to being hell-bent on there's no God. Right. But the type of lifestyle I lived, I thought, if there's a God, he's probably not really happy with me. Right. So I'll just hold on to this agnostic thing. But I, every time throughout my life, if I ended up in jail, you could bet your bottom dollar, I'm going to start putting my blanket over my head and praying to something to get me out of this mess, yeah. right? Because yeah. if you're there now, God, I know right. I don't really say I believe in you, yeah. but I'll believe in you if you get me out of this Please mess. Please help. Yeah. Please help. Yeah. But it made it really easy when I got sober because the sponsor I had never shoved God down my throat. He just talked about God in a way that he loved God, mm-hmm. which made it, again, the attraction rather than the promotion. Yeah. And over, not it didn't take but very long, Chris, probably like just a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months, where I was like, I get on my knees, I start praying, and I start connecting to something greater yeah. than myself, yeah. which I, at the time, called higher power. Yeah. A lot of people call it that. Yeah. I call it God. Now. Yeah. It's Absolutely. God. I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. I didn't create all this. Right. Right? Right. So you made that commitment. You're going to help every alcoholic that you can. Anyone that comes in my path, and that's what I try to do. And then how would you get your first job in the recovery world? Well, when I was working, my first job, my get well job, Trader Joe's. Okay. Nobody was hiring me. First, I was a little bit lazy, and I'd lie and say, I go and apply places. They don't want a felon working there. That was bullshit. I was sitting on my flip phone doing nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. I went to Trader Joe's here in Costa Mesa. They wouldn't hire me, so I went to the one in Irvine. I walked up to the guy. I don't know how I figured this out. I still listen, I've already given you my application. Will you guys please just hire me? Like I'll I'll come every day and show you how serious I'm about getting this job. Just please hire me. And he said, you know what, come outside. He took me outside. We did an interview, got hired on the spot. He said, you were smiling in your interview. This is Trader Joe's. We're like the Disneyland of grocery stores. We look for smiles and personalities. We want people that are nice to people. And I said, very good. So I worked at Trader Joe's for six years while I put myself through school. I went to school part-time, but I wanted to like take it to the next level. I I certainly wasn't going to work at Trader Joe's for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And when I went to school... I wanted to do drug and alcohol studies. I wanted to work in treatment. So it started with Trader Joe's as my first job, and then it became working in an adolescent facility over here in Orange Park Acres, which was Newport Academy. Mm-hmm. I watched the the origination of that place, which was just a women's house and a men's house. Got to work with, with teens. Yeah. And what did you do there? Were you like a support staff at first? Support yeah. staff. Just kind of, uh, they called it a um, client care coordinator, something like that, uh-huh. right? Um, and I, I work with these kids. Like mm-hmm. basically, I got to see these young kids smoking pills coming in here, and it was kind of an experience. Uh, a lot of power struggles. Mm-hmm. I was only like five, six years sober, so it was like I had a strong personality, and, yeah. and sometimes the kids liked me, and sometimes they hated my guts. Yeah. But um, Department of Justice took me out of there because I was a meth seller before. Mm-hmm. They didn't want me around adolescents. In that time, I was fighting that case, went back to Trader Joe's to work, and um, and then I got a job at Morningside Recovery. Okay. And Morningside was is no longer there. Right. But I was between going to school and trying to fight that case with the Department of Justice because I wanted to go back and work the, with the kids. 
But in that time, I got I started working in adult treatment, mm -hmm. and then I beat the case with Department of Justice. So I was going to be put on a probationary period. I could go back. I just said I'm going to. Things started to like take off with Morningside, right? And that's just where I stayed was with adult treatment. Yeah. So what'd you do at Morningside? You started out as support staff and worked your way up to what? I was uh, support staff, but I was because I was in school. They started to let me run groups. Yeah. So I was running five groups, and then on top of that, I became a house manager, and um, that was good. I got to live on in Newport. I never got to live in Newport Beach before, yeah. especially a two million dollar house that like yeah. is within walking distance of the beach. Sure. So two years I was a house manager and working as an employee for them. It was a great experience. Yeah. I watched at least two hundred men come through our house during that time. Some of them still stayed sober. Some didn't. Um, but that was like where the ball started to get rolling with me working in treatment, and right. then then I started working in other centers. Right. So what what do you think like so once you made that decision like what was your what was your growth like in sobriety like personally emotionally like what was that process like what did what did the steps do for you I could never be for some reason um, I was never in a healthy loving relationship with another female mm -hmm. there was a bunch of times that I would date girls for some reason I was like a magnet to borderline personality disorder women yeah. right. Um, Sometimes I contemplated and wondered, am I BPD? Like maybe I don't, right. maybe my upbringing, this and that. But what it was was um, I just feel like, you know, I, I needed to experience those relationships mm -hmm. for me to realize what I don't want. Right. right now I'm in a very healthy relationship with a sober woman that she's of service. She loves her recovery. You should have her on this podcast, Powerhouse. That'd like, be great. She's great, yeah. But um, but I needed to go through that that journey the steps was an ongoing thing. When it comes to the twelve step world, yeah. I'm connected. I stay. Yeah, it's it's what I'm going to do to the day I die. Right. Um, steps helped spiritually. They helped a lot. I also started journeying out and uh, investigating other forms of spirituality. That was definitely something that I loved to do and still love to do. I started writing a book. I'm in the process of writing this book. Um, and on top of that. I wanted to take my career to the next level. I worked in treatment centers where I was a case manager and some of these treatment centers were growing mm -hmm. and they were getting lots of clients in. So my caseloads were just gnarly crazy. Right. I'm talking like caseloads of 16 and 20 people and it was taking a lot out of me and yeah. between running groups and doing notes and all this stuff. I just I found myself in like reflexology massage places in yeah. Garden Grove like twice a week because I was like trying to just decompress. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Pej, why? And pe I have good mentors that tell you stuff like, um, uh, work less and get paid more. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to take it to the next level. I'd already gone and become the counselor, the right. case manager, been a program director, program manager, all that stuff. I wanted to become an interventionist. And that's when I met Earl. and Earl Hightower. Earl Hightower. Yeah. The way I... It was kind of a trip the way I met him because I worked at Morningside and this girl, Aaron Mellinger, gave me a CD and said, have you ever heard of Earl Hightower? I'm like, right. no, who's that? Is he black or something? Like, yeah. like Hightower, I thought of the guy you, from you think Police of, Academy. You think of a six foot five black yeah. guy, but Earl's like this tall, yeah, exactly. like, got she huge gave me, personality. Exactly. Yeah. She gave me the CD. I listened to it. I related to it. Yeah. sounded similar to my story, although his family died. Mine didn't, but mm -hmm. very similar to how, how he stopped believing in God. And while at Morningside, I got this opportunity to move to L.A. to go and open up these sober livings, like very structured places. Mm -hmm. 
And I looked up Earl Hightower, and I was like, I wonder if this guy, like, it looks like he helps a lot more people than just the alcoholic. Right. Where's he live? Oh, he lives in L.A. I wonder if I'll ever run into him. Mm -hmm. Three weeks into moving to L.A., we get a flyer. Coming out of speaker hiatus, Earl Hightower is going to be speaking at this Cocaine Anonymous meeting mm -hmm. at in Kensington Park or whatever over in Santa Monica. Um, and I said to all the guys now, we're going to go. I've never, I've only heard a CD. We're going to go hear this guy. Right. And when I met him, thus our friendship evolved, mm -hmm. uh, both in the 12-step realm, but in the treatment world. Right. And it was him that took me under his wing and said, come and work at Hightower Associates. At the time, I also became a uh, sober coach, life coach. I was doing some companion work. Mm -hmm. But when I went to work with Earl, he taught me the ins and outs of intervention. He taught me uh, marketing. He taught me you know, how to, he, ethics, I mean, through and through. The mm -hmm. man is a very ethical man. And right. I know some people try to put me under the microscope to right. see who I am, but I have nothing to worry about because I, I know my in my heart of hearts I'm here to help people, sure. and that's all I do, yeah. right? But I wanted to work uh, doing interventions. I wanted to be on the front. I'd been on the front lines in treatment. That's, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But to actually go into somebody's humble abode where they're like an active addict yeah. and try to make it apparent to them that their life isn't working and bring them out of that yeah. and get them into the path of recovery, that's an art within itself. That's tough. It is tough. Yeah. And, and Earl was, he's renowned. He's done it for decades, right? So being taught by that man was one of the best experiences that I've had in my recovery. Along with being taught at Saddleback by those teachers, those mm -hmm. teachers were so good at what they taught. You so know? what was that like doing your first intervention with Earl? Like, like what was that? I never did it alongside Earl. Earl supervised me. Okay. But when when somebody like him is supervising, it means that I tell him the scenario and the case in advance that I'm getting. Yeah. And then he tells me what he would do if he was to go along through it. Yeah. And then I come back and tell him afterwards what it was like. What it was like though. Is what was the first one like you ever did? The first one I remember I did. I I kept hearing Earl's voice in my head because I'd already been in in his training courses. Mm -hmm. So I kept thinking like, what would Earl say right now? And it would just come out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And then over a period of time, I got to like, under his direction and his teachings, learn from him, but give it my spin or come with my style of recovery. Or, And he usually taught the, the Johnson model, which is traditionally like writing letters, the family all write letters and things like that. But I went to other trainings like Patty Pike and Ed Storty, and I learned like um, invitational, uh, invita like invitational, interventions mm -hmm. as well as motivational and things like that the first one was uh i got him into treatment it, it worked right <laughs> i was mm -hmm. like okay this is a thing like this is actually happening yeah and it, and it gave me more drive to keep trying to do this i also learned that no intervention is a failed intervention even mm -hmm. if the person doesn't go to treatment ever or the first try or the ten, first 10 tries you're intervening on their life you're an interventionist intervening on their life you're opening their mind to the idea of changing their life. Yeah. You're also letting them know that if they think they're alone in their world, there are people that have brought you in to try to help them. That means the people do care about you. The ball is in your court. You need to make the decision. Do you want to change your life or do you want to still be in this? Now, if a person's enabled or they're shacked up in their mom's house doing fentanyl uh, and they don't have to pay for anything in life, no bills, no nothing like that, 
then they probably it's going to be harder to convince that person you need to get help unless the mom's on board with that person not residing there anymore. Right. Right. But um, I ha- I've had a lot of amazing cases, a lot of interesting cases. Uh, none of them have been failed just mm-hmm. because the person didn't get in. Um, these are this is an ongoing thing where I'm always trying to help help the individual understand that you're suffering and you don't even know you're suffering. Yeah. And you need help. Yeah. For so for family members or people that don't know, like what you know, what is what is an like intervention like as far as the family goes? Like what is what do they need to know? Like Well sometimes I mean and I'll just say this, I'll be very candid. Like when I'm doing an intervention on an on an individual mm-hmm. that family members have come together for me to do the intervention, what I find myself sometimes doing is once I meet the family I might need to intervene on one of the family members, if not a few of them, that are a part of this problem. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they've enabled it for far too long, <clears throat> and sometimes they know they need to be intervened on, yeah. right? Or, or they're okay with it. And as an interventionist, I need to pick the right words to where I'm not offending. Yeah. But I'm trying to assist and help and show them, hey, just so you know, as long as you're doing this, they'll still be doing that. And when you stop doing this, it gives me an opportunity to get them to stop doing that. So families are interesting. There can be family members that are totally on board with wanting to help their loved one. They're going to do A, B, and C, but all of a sudden you get down to the nitty-gritty and you're in the the process of the intervention, and they could totally go the other way and say, I'm actually not going to do this. Right. Which just ruins it. Yeah, it just ruins it. I'm gonna keep paying your rent. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna keep, keep paying. I'm gonna yeah. keep putting. Pow- I'm gonna keep giving power to your right. addiction, to your disease, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. But um, but you know the families that listen, the families, and that now I do a lot of coaching and things like that too mm-hmm. for family members. Sometimes in advance of the intervention, because usually it's a pre-intervention. Like if you're gonna get a family involved, you have to do pre-intervention with the family. To figure out the scenario. Mm-hmm. What are we dealing with? How long has he been using? What's he using? Where's he living? All this and that. Homeless? In a house? Whatever. And in that pre-intervention, we choose who we think is going to be most effective to be a part of this thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but sometimes, you know, they're just not ready off one pre-intervention, so you need to coach them for a while yeah. to get them in the right position to say the right things, the do's and don'ts, um, and usually, like when the intervention goes down, it it naturally flows. Yeah. Uh, as Earl taught me, and now I love doing this. I can read a room when I walk in it. Mm-hmm. Like I just know, like just by the feel of the room. Yeah. What I'm about to walk into. Yeah. I've literally had interventions. Somebody I brought to South Coast counseling. It's an alcoholic man, 51, 52 years old. The whole family was there. Everyone wrote letters. Um, it was it was amazing. Like. The problem was that the brother that went to pick up the guy to bring him to the intervention told him along the way, you know we're about to go and you're about to get intervened on. Told him before. <laughs> pull, like they pull up and the guy walks in and he just looks and he goes, well, I know what I need to do. <laughs> and then the mom, she was like 80-something years old sitting in her chair that she probably never leaves. Yeah. She's like, wait, well, I haven't even read my letter yet. And everybody said, let's sit down and listen to mom read the letter. She read the letter. He goes, should I pack a bag? I said, yes, you should. We got in the car, and I thought, I didn't have to say much today. That was it. it just worked out. That was the easiest out. intervention ever. Yeah. But he went to treatment. Yeah. And he got the help that he needed. Yeah. That's great. 
That's great. What uh, so <laughs> you made a comment at some point about you're, you're kind of the go-to guy for the tweaker world and interventions because a lot of interventionists don't, they don't want to deal with mess it. with people on meth. What is that like? Well, you think about it like when a person that's doing methamphetamine is in full-blown psychosis, meth-induced psychosis, Yeah, they're in full flight from reality. There's no talking to them. Yeah, they, They're they convinced the aliens are real. Are, are real. Yeah. They're convinced the feds are on to them. Mm-hmm. The CIA's on to them. There's cameras in the ceiling. There's cameras in the car. There's their computers been hacked. Yeah. They're being gang stalked. They're convinced of all this. Yeah. So along comes this interventionist that's going to come and try to convince them different. Yeah. If I got to be really careful with them because they're going to think I'm part of all that. Yeah. But if I come in as and as a, as a guy that doesn't say, hey, I'm a professional interventionist that's come to mm-hmm. change your life. I come in. I'm like, yo, get check this out. Yeah. You don't need to tell me what you're doing. Yeah. But I know I used to do certain things, and I used to hear certain things, and sometimes I used to think certain things. I'm going to tell you this right now. Just when you think the feds are on to you, I just want to, you can, man to man, are you breaking federal laws? Mm -hmm. Because I tell you right now, I know the feds don't even go after a lot of people that break federal laws unless you're a big fish. And I would have good reason to believe you're not a big fish. Yeah. You're just a guy that's that probably just spends a lot of time in this garage every day, yeah, fixing shit, yeah. right? Yeah, I gotta try to win their heart over. Like, I gotta build rapport in some way, however that may be, without offending. I gotta build their trust, and usually the a lot of interventions, especially a lot of back east ones, they're like, they'll call me on the on the tweaker ones because they mm-hmm. know I'm a former tweaker and like I yeah. I know the thought process, I know right. the mentality. And I know how to talk to them. So yeah. they'll just throw the case at me and be like, you, you take this one, right? right. But, um, and I don't always succeed. Yeah. Sometimes it's an ongoing case. Sure. My whole thing is, is, as an interventionist, I'll work on a case sometimes up to two months. Yeah. You know, to be able to let that person know, I'm not trying to do anything today. Yeah. I'm just here just to let you know I care about you, mm-hmm. right? And then if I can build that trust, then after a while, hopefully in their convoluted thought process, they might think, hey, I'm really having a day, but that guy speaks my language and I think mm-hmm. I need to call him today. And then all of a sudden they'll call and be like, what do I need to do? Right. Oh, you got some sleep? Here, let's talk. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's cool. So tell me, you, you've got a podcast. I, I'm, I'm pretty new to this. I think this is my 10th one. I'm having a ball doing no, it. No, you're doing um, great. I've been watching them, man. Yeah, you thank some you. Good, I saw Velvet. Yeah, She's Velvet great. was on here, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, two All weeks ago, yeah, Velvet was great. I'm proud of you. A lot of, thank you. I'm having fun. What? Tell me about your podcast. How long you been doing that? And well, when I used to work at Beginnings Treatment Centers, uh, we had a podcast called The Sober Grind. Mm-hmm. Me and this guy Austin, he was a normie. I was the drug addict, mm-hmm. alcoholic in recovery. So that was like when I got my feet wet in the podcast world. That was good. It it ran its course. During the pandemic, I wanted to do something independent because I wasn't really working anywhere, yeah. and I thought I'll create a thing called Peggy's Recovery Corner. Mm-hmm. Peggy's Recovery Corner was actually something I started in 2015, a Facebook page with a picture of a chair where a guest would sit and like some graffiti on the back wall mm-hmm. that I found like uh, some stock photos of, right? I put, I, I started this page on Facebook, didn't do much with it, sometimes put some recovery quotes and things like that on it, but then I manifested this shit. Mm-hmm. Like during the, the pandemic, everyone was doing podcasts. Right. I mean, we 
were all confined in our houses. Yeah. We weren't allowed to go out Gotta anywhere. Do something. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? I'll start buying some equipment. At first, I would bring all my friends, all different guests, a few celebrities that are now in recovery mm-hmm. that I knew and things like that. And I bring them in, some professionals, people that like work on the front lines of addiction, mm-hmm. a doctor, a therapist, all these types of people. And um, and that's what I started doing. And first, it was in my little office that I had, um, very generic. We didn't even like. There was one microphone. There was no headphones, nothing yeah. like that. And then, I, of course, like, what do we study most when it comes to podcasts? We who do we like the most? Right. Joe Rogan, right? Yeah. So like, he he took it next level, right? So why not have our sound be like dialed in? Yeah. Why not like the way we're hearing each other right now? Yeah. Like, why not have it like pro style? Mm-hmm. So little by little, I started just building and expanding on this, and I built out the studio, got all the equipment that I needed. Um, you can do this stuff when you're sober, right? Yeah. And um, and then I, I more recently I got ASAP Abby. She's the homie. She's uh, yeah. She has rebranded all my stuff. We've got um, you know some animation going on, a new logo and everything. And uh, it's it's a podcast. It's called Pe- My Name Is Pej. Pe- so it's Pejman, but my mom would always call me Peji. My friends mm-hmm. called me Peji. So Peggy's Recovery Corner is a recovery podcast where we interview people from all walks of life, uh, former addicts, former alcoholics, people with mental health, but people that are in the recovery world. Yeah, uh, we get people. We get people to come on there and tell their stories. We get people with 120 days sober. You know, that's cool. We want to hear from everybody and anybody mm-hmm. that's on the path of recovery. Yeah. And you know what? I'd even consider bringing people on that aren't sober yet, but yeah. want to get sober and just you know let people see different things. Well, that's on my YouTube channel is Peggy's Recovery Corner, as well as all the other different podcast uh, platforms. But my YouTube channel is called Pej Interventions. Um, we do a lot of educational stuff on there, lots of individual videos. And Peggy's Recovery Corner, the podcast, is one component of that. Like, that's great. So Pej Interventions, P-E-J Interventions, is uh, YouTube. Subscribe. Yeah. Like, go on there and like it. Yeah. Share that stuff because we're out yeah. to try to help anyone we can. Love it. Thank you. Okay, so give me a give me a day in the life of Pej today, sober Pej. I mean, my days vary. Um, I usually in the top of the morning, uh, I plug into my higher power. Mm-hmm. I meditate. Intuitive thoughts come to me. I pray. I ask God to show me what He wants for me. I go throughout my day. I I've got a, a schedule where I got a I have a huge TikTok following. YouTube following, Instagram following, Facebook following, so I get a lot of messages mm-hmm. worldwide, right? That's neat. A lot of the out of the country stuff is on my WhatsApp. I check my WhatsApp. I go check my messages on TikTok and all that. I try to respond to as many people as I can. I've got a little team that's been helping me with that too. We try to just help people find the help they need. If people need treatment, if they don't have insurance, we try to find them options. If they do have insurance, we try to find them right. options. Um, that's that's that. That's mm-hmm. for a few hours. And then um, on certain days, we do filming. Mm-hmm. We film TikTok videos for hours on end. Uh, we film YouTube videos for hours on end. And then um, a lot of phone calls. I'm on the phone a lot. I'm talking to families. I'm talking to treatment centers. I'm talking to, uh, sometimes I'm going in touring centers, uh, seeing what's good out there for when I'm referring people. Um, Lots of stuff. I mean, there's never a dull moment in my life. On top of that, I have some sober livings. Um, they're amazing yeah. homes. They're very structured. They're like well-oiled machines. They run themselves. I have people that were former residents that help with that. 
highly structured, no nonsense, very similar to the place that I got sober in. We have a high success rate, lots of sobriety, low relapse rate. When they relapse, they don't really do it in the house. If they Mm do, they go out and do it. But we know where they're at in their recovery regardless. So we usually catch anything before it even gets to that point. Yeah. Yeah, I love sending people to your recovery homes. They Thank always you. do well. It's Thank neat. Um, okay, last question. What's your message for that person that's out there struggling with alcohol, drugs? What would you say to that person? Well, anybody that's struggling, suffering, um, I just want you to know that we can all get well. Like, I don't think that God wants us to suffer. Even if you don't believe in God, we're not... We weren't born to become dependent or become a slave to a pipe, a needle, a bottle. It's just not supposed to be that way. If it's become a problem for you in your life, there is hope. If I could get good, if I could get better, if I could, all these people that I know that were really, really mm-hmm. uh, at their wits end and countless main attempts, if they can all get better, you can get better. I don't care if you're homeless. I was homeless. I don't care if you are about to lose your home. I don't care if you don't have family members, if you're grieving. You can get better. You don't need to be a slave to that stuff. It wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be like this, right? Like uh, I got to have a second life and a third life because I beat cancer in recovery. Yeah. So uh, it's just there's a lot to live for, and we need you. We actually need people to get better so that we can help the next one and the next one. I know Mm -hmm. when I was in, in, in my addiction, there was always this little part of me, that little soul, that always said, I want to help people, right? but I'm so far gone that I don't know if I could ever get there to help the people. And when I actually came on the other side of this and got into recovery, I realized like now I can help the people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would hope for anybody that's out there. Because I see a lot of people that are in active addiction, they'll help people right. in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. They'll help each other even. Mm-hmm. They'll narc you at a friend, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. Or they'll push groceries or go and they'll assist people. Yeah. But you got to help yourself first in order to be able to help other people. Yeah. We need we need people to get better. Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, thanks for coming thanks on. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you. This is so awesome. All right. I love this.